This series of 14 addresses is based on texts from 1st and 2nd Timothy and the Epistle to Titus, a group of biblical texts which in themselves are rarely found as the subject of sermons in printed form. Calvin's sermons are distinctly expository and reflect more than any of his writings the devotional zeal and warmth of his personality. These model extempore addresses enable the reader to obtain an intimate understanding of the real Calvin as a beloved minister of the word. In them is found the wisdom of a man whose every address carried significance in an age of crucial advancement upon the foundations of the Reformation. Above all, they reflect Calvin's utter dependence upon the Word and his strict adherence to the literal teachings of the New Testament. About the author, John Calvin was born July 10, 1509, the second of five sons in Noyon, 60 miles northeast of Paris. While in college, he embraced Protestantism and became one of the leaders of that movement in Paris. He was caught up in the Reformation movement, which led him to concentrate his energies on biblical studies. Continually on the move to avoid imprisonment or persecution because of his stand on Reformation issues, Calvin began to use his pen to further the cause of the Protestant faith. In March 1536, he published a volume of seven chapters entitled Christiani Religionis Institutio, Institutes of the Christian Religion. It quickly became popular among Protestants as an able exposition of their doctrines. By the time the definitive edition appeared in 1559, it was so altered that it was now four books and 79 chapters. Never a healthy man, Calvin died on May 27, 1564. This book is recorded by permission of Soli Deo Gloria Publications for Instruction in Righteousness. The Mystery of Godliness and Other Select Sermons by John Calvin. Chapter 7 The Salvation of All Men. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2, 3 through 5. When we despise those whom God would have honored, it is as much as if we should despise him. So it is if we make no account of the salvation of those whom God calleth to himself. For it seemeth thereby that we should stay him from showing his mercy to poor sinners who are in the way to ruin. The reason why St. Paul uses this argument, that God will have all the world to be saved, is that we may, as much as lieth in us, also seek the salvation of those who seem to be banished from the kingdom of God, especially while they are unbelievers. 
We must always observe what the condition of the world was in the days of St. Paul. It was something new and strange to have the gospel published to the world in those days, for it appeared that God had chosen the stock of Abraham and that the rest of the world would be deprived of all hope of salvation. And indeed, we see how Holy Writ setteth forth the adoption of this people. But St. Paul commandeth us to pray for all the world, and not without cause, for he addeth the reason which is here mentioned to wit, because God will have all men to be saved. As if he should say, my friends, it is reasonable that we should observe what the will of God is and at what he aimeth, that every one of us may employ himself to serve him aright. Therefore, seeing it is the will of God that all men should be partakers of that salvation which he hath sent in the person of his only begotten Son, we must endeavor to draw poor, silly, ignorant creatures to us, that we may all come together to this inheritance of the kingdom of heaven, which hath been promised us. But we must observe that St. Paul speaketh not of every particular man, but of all sorts of men, and of all people. Therefore, when he saith that God will have all men to be saved, we must not think that he speaketh of them individually. But his meaning is this that whereas in times past he chose a certain people to himself, he meaneth now to show mercy to all the world, yea, even to them that seemed to be shut out from the hope of salvation. He saith in another place, the heathens were without God and void of all promise, because they were not as yet brought to the fellowship of the Jews. This was a special privilege that God had given to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, St. Paul's meaning is not that God will save every man, but that the promises which were given to but one people are now extended to all the world. For as he saith in this same epistle, the wall was broken down at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. God had separated the Jews from all other nations. But when Jesus Christ appeared for the salvation of the world, then was this difference which existed between them and the Gentiles taken away. Therefore God will now embrace us all, and this is the entrance into our salvation. For if that had always continued, which God ordained but for a season, then should we be all accursed, and the gospel would not have been preached to us. We should have had no sign or token of the love and goodness of God. But now we have become his children. We are no more strangers to the promises as were our fathers. For Jesus Christ came to be a Savior to all in general. He offered the grace of God the Father that all might receive it. As St. Paul speaketh of all nations, so he likewise speaketh of all conditions. As if he should say, God will save kings and magistrates as well as others. We must not restrain his fatherly goodness to ourselves alone, nor to any certain number of people. And why so? For he showeth that he will be favorable to all. Thus we have St. Paul's meaning. 
to confirm this matter, he added, It is God's will that all should come to the knowledge of the truth. We must mark well why St. Paul useth this argument, for we cannot know the will of God unless it be made known to us, unless we have some sign or token whereby we may perceive it. It is too high a matter for us to know what God's counsel is, but as far as he showeth it to us by effect, so far we comprehend it. The gospel is called the mighty power of God and salvation to all them that believe. Yea, it is the gate of paradise. It followeth then, if through the will of God the gospel be preached to all the world, there is a token that salvation is common to all. Thus, St. Paul proveth that God's will is that all men should be saved. He hath not appointed his apostles to proclaim his name only among the Jews, for we know that the commission was given them to preach to all creatures, to be witnesses of Jesus Christ from Jerusalem to Samaria and from thence throughout all the world. Are the apostles sent to publish the truth of God to all people and to all conditions of men? It followeth then that God presenteth himself to all the world, that the promise belongeth to both great and small, as well to the Gentiles now as to the Jews before. But before we go any farther, it is necessary to beat down the folly, or rather the beast of those who abuse this passage of St. Paul, who endeavor to make the election of God of no effect and to utterly take it away. They say, if God will have all men to be saved, it follows that he hath not chosen a certain number of mankind and cast the rest away, but that his will remaineth indifferent. They pretend that it is left to the choice of men to save themselves or not, that God letteth us alone and waiteth to see whether we will come to him or not, and so receiveth them that come unto him. But in the meantime, they destroy the groundwork of our salvation, for we know that we are so accursed that the inheritance of salvation is far from us. If we say that Jesus Christ hath come to remedy that, then must we examine the nature of mankind. We are so contrary in our nature and such enemies to God that we cannot but resist him. We are so given to evil and wickedness that we cannot so much as conceive a good thought. How then can it be that we may become partakers of that salvation which is offered in the gospel unless God draw us to it by his Holy Spirit? Let us now see whether God draw all the world to it or not. No, no, for then had our Lord Jesus Christ said, In vain, no man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. John six forty four. So then we must needs conclude that it is a special grace that God bestoweth upon such as pleaseth him to draw them and teach them in such a manner that they believe the gospel and receive it with true faith. 
And now, why doth God choose one and leave another? We know that men cannot come to God by their own deserts, neither are those who have been chosen deserving any such thing as to be preferred to their companions, as though there were some worthiness in them. It followeth then that before the world was made, as St. Paul saith in the first to the Ephesians, God chose such as pleased him, and we know not why this man was chosen in preference to that. Still, we must confess that whatsoever God doth is done justly, although we cannot comprehend it. Therefore, let us receive that whereof we are so thoroughly certified in holy writ, and not suffer ourselves to be led astray under a shadow of vain reason used by men who are ignorant of the word of God. At the first sight, there appears to be some weight in their argument. God will have all men to be saved. Therefore, say they, it is left to the free choice of every man to become enlightened in the faith and to partake of salvation. If a man will read but three lines, he will easily perceive that St. Paul here speaketh not of every particular man, as we have already shown, but that he speaketh of all people and of all conditions of men. He showeth that the case standeth not as it did before the coming of Christ, when there was but one chosen people, but that God now showeth himself a Savior to all the world. As it is said, thine inheritance shall be even to the ends of the earth. Moreover, that no man may abuse himself or be deceived by the vain and foolish talk of those who pervert holy writ, let us examine how the doctrine of these enemies of God and all godliness standeth. God will have all men to be saved, that is, as they imagine, every one. If it be the will of God at present, no doubt it was the same from the beginning of the world, for we know that his mind changeth not. So then, if at this day God will have all men to be saved, his mind was so always. And if his mind was so always, what shall we make of what St. Paul saith? that he will that all men come to the knowledge of the truth. He chose but one people to himself, as it is said, Acts 14, and left the poor Gentiles to walk in their own ignorance. There were likewise some countries where he would not suffer St. Paul to preach, as in Bithynia and Phrygia, Acts 16:7. And so we see that God would not have the knowledge of the gospel to come to everyone at first. Thus, we may easily see the error of those who abuse this text. St. Paul speaketh not in this place of the counsel of God, neither doth he mean to lead us to his everlasting election, which was before the beginning of the world, but only showeth what his will and pleasure is as far as we ought to know it. It is true that God changeth not, neither hath he two wills, nor doth he use any counterfeit dealing, and yet the scripture speaketh unto us in two ways concerning his will, and how can that be? How cometh it to pass that his will is spoken of in two different ways? 
It is because of our grossness and want of understanding. Why doth he make himself to have eyes, to have ears, and to have a nose? Why doth he take upon him men's affections? Why is it that he saith he is angry, he is sorry? Is it not because we cannot comprehend him in his incomprehensible majesty? Therefore it is not absurd that Holy Writ should speak unto us of the will of God after two sorts, not because his will is double, but in order that he may apply himself to our weakness, knowing that our understanding is gross and heavy. When the scripture informeth us that God hath chosen such as pleased him before the world began, we behold a counsel into which we cannot enter. Why then doth Holy Writ inform us that this election and choice of God is everlasting? It is not without cause, for it is a very profitable doctrine, if it be received as it ought to be. For thereby we are reminded that we are not called to the knowledge of the gospel by reason of our own worthiness. We are no better than others, for we all sprung from the cursed root of Adam. We are all subject to the same condemnation, and we are all shut up under the slavery of sin and death. When it pleased God to draw us out of the darkness of unbelief and give us the light of the gospel, he looked not at any service which we might have performed or at any virtue we might have possessed, but he called us, having chosen us before. This is the order in which St. Paul maketh mention in Romans 8, that knowing God, we must not take the glory to ourselves. Thus, the calling of the faithful resteth upon this counsel of God, and we see how far the Lord maketh known to us that which he had decreed before we were born. He toucheth us with his Holy Spirit, and we are engrafted, as it were, into the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the true earnest of our adoption. This is the pledge given us to put us out of all doubt that God taketh and holdeth us for his children when by faith we are made one with Jesus Christ who is the only begotten Son of God unto whom belongeth the inheritance of life. God giveth us such a sure testimony of his will that notwithstanding our ignorance, he putteth us out of doubt of our election. He giveth us a hope of which we should be entirely void if Jesus Christ did not call us to be members of his body. Thus we see how profitable this doctrine of election is to us. It serveth to humble us, knowing that our salvation hangeth not upon our deserts, neither upon the virtue which God might have found in us, but upon the election that was made before we were born, before we could do either good or evil. When we know that according to this unchangeable election, God hath called us to himself, we are so much the more put out of doubt of our salvation. Jesus Christ saith, No man taketh from me that which the Father hath given me. John 10. What is it that the Father hath given Jesus Christ? They 
whom he hath chosen and whom he knoweth to be his. Seeing the case standeth thus, that God hath given us to his Son to be kept and defended by him, and that Jesus Christ promiseth that none of us shall be lost, and that he will exercise all the might and power of the Godhead to save and defend us. Is not this a comfort surpassing all the treasures of the world? Is not this the true ground upon which all the assurance and certainty of our salvation is settled? We are as birds upon the boughs and set forth as a prey to Satan. What assurance then could we have of tomorrow and of all our life, yea, and after death, were it not that God who had called us will end his work as he hath begun it? How hath he gathered us together in the faith of the gospel? Is it grounded upon us? Nay, entirely to the contrary. It proceedeth from his free election. Therefore, we may be so much the more freed from doubt. We must not strive to know any more of God's counsel than what is revealed in Holy Writ. The will of God is opened to us as often as we hear his word preached, whereby he calleth and exhorteth us all to repentance. After he hath once shown us that we are all damned in his sight, and that there is nothing but condemnation in us, he showeth us that we must renounce ourselves and get out of this bottomless pit. In that which God exhorteth all men, we may judge that it is his will that all men should be saved. As he saith by the prophet Ezekiel, Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live? Chapter 18, verse 23. Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Chapter 33, verse 11. How will God have sinners turn from themselves, and how shall we know it, seeing he will have repentance preached to all the world, when it is said that God will have mercy upon sinners, upon such as will come to him, and ask forgiveness in Christ's name. It is a general doctrine. So then it is said that God will have all men to be saved, not having respect to what we devise or imagine, that is, as far as our knowledge can comprehend it. When the scripture speaketh of the love and will of God, let us see if men can have repentance by their own actions, being self-taught, or whether it is God that giveth it. God saith by his prophet, I will that all men turn and live. Can a man by his own works turn himself? No, for if that were in our power, it were more than to make us. It is an undoubted doctrine throughout the whole scripture that our Lord Jesus Christ giveth himself the praise of turning us, he saith. I will put a new spirit within you, and I will take the stony heart out of their flesh, and I will give them an heart of flesh. Ezekiel 11:19. 
to be short. There is nothing that the faithful ought so much to do as to give God the glory, confessing that it is He alone that can turn us, and that He hath adopted us in such a manner that He must needs draw us by the grace of His Spirit. Have men such knowledge that they are able to attain this faith, this wonderful wisdom which is contained in the gospel, such as the very angels themselves reverence? Let us mark what God saith to us in his word, that he will open our eyes and unstop our ears, because the natural man understandeth no part of the secrets of God. For it is the Holy Ghost that revealeth them to us. It is hardly possible to read a single passage in Holy Writ without finding some sentence which informeth us that men are utterly blind by nature until God openeth their eyes. They can in no wise come to Him until He draw them and enlighten them by His Holy Spirit. Seeing that God alone turneth a man from their wickedness, experience teacheth us, and so doth the Holy Scriptures, that he giveth not his grace to all men. It is said, The Lord hath not given you an heart to perceive, and eyes to see, and ears to hear unto this day. Deuteronomy 29.4 It is plainly shown that God doth not cast forth his grace without direction, but that it is only for those whom he hath chosen, for those that are of the body of his church and of his flock. Thus we see what St. Paul meaneth when he saith, God will have all men to be saved. That is, he will have some of all nations and all conditions. It is said that he offereth his gospel to all, which is the means of drawing us to salvation. And doth this profit all men? No. Of this our own eyes are witnesses. For when we hear the truth of God, if we rebel against it, it proves a great condemnation to us. Yet so it is that there are many who do not profit by the gospel, but rather become worse, even those to whom it is preached. Therefore, they are not all saved. God must go farther in order to bring us to salvation. He must not only appoint men and send them to teach us faithfully, but he must operate upon our hearts. He must touch us to the quick. He must draw us to him. He must make his work profitable to us and cause it to take root in our hearts. It is evident that we have to consider the will of God in two ways. Not that it is double of itself, as we before observed, but we must consider it as adapted to our weakness. He formeth his speech to us in his word according to our capacity. If God should speak according to his majesty, his speech would be beyond our comprehension. It would utterly confound us. For if our eyes be not able to abide the brightness of the sun, would our minds be able to comprehend the infinite majesty of God? These silly men who would destroy God's election ought not to abuse this passage, nor say that we make God to have two wills, for therein do they impudently misrepresent us. 
we say, as far as we can perceive, God would have all men to be saved, whensoever and how oft soever he appointeth his gospel to be preached to us. As we said before, the gate of paradise is opened to us when we are called to be partakers of that redemption which was purchased for us by our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the will of God, as far as we can comprehend it, that when he exhorteth us to repentance, he is ready to receive us if we will come to him. Although we have answered the doubts which might have been raised upon this subject, we will bring a similitude to make this doctrine more easy. I call a similitude that agreement and similarity which God maketh between the children of Israel and us. God saith that he chose the children of Abraham for his inheritance and dedicated them to himself. He loved them and took them for his own household. Deuteronomy 7. This is true. For he made his covenant with all those that were circumcised. Was circumcision a vain figure and of no importance? Nay, it was a sure and undoubted sign that God had chosen that people for his own, accounting all for his flock that came of that race. And yet, was there not a special grace for some of that people? Surely there was, as St. Paul setteth forth, for they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children. Romans 9, 6, and 7. For God deprived some of this benefit that his grace and goodness might seem greater to those whom he called to himself. Behold, therefore, the will of God, which was made manifest to the children of Israel, is at this day made manifest to us. It is said in Amos 4, 7, God caused it to rain upon one city, and caused it not to rain upon another city. So the Lord sendeth his gospel, wheresoever it pleaseth him. His grace is poured out upon all the world, yet it cannot be, but he worketh otherwise with those whom he draweth to himself. For all of us have our ears stopped and our eyes hoodwinked. We are deaf and blind, unless he prepareth us to receive his word. When the gospel is preached to us, it is as much as if God reached out his hand, as he saith in Isaiah 65, 2, and said to us, Come unto me. It is a matter which ought to touch us to the heart when we perceive that God cometh to seek us. He does not wait till we come to him, but he showeth us that he is ready to receive us, although we were his deadly enemies. He wipeth away all our faults and maketh us partakers of that salvation which was purchased for us by our Lord Jesus Christ. 
us we see how worthy the gospel is to be esteemed and what a treasure it is. As St. Paul saith to the Romans, it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. It is the kingdom of heaven and God openeth the door that we being taken out of the bottomless pit wherein we were sunk by nature may enter into his glory. We must remember that it is not enough for us to receive the word that is preached to us by the mouth of man. But after we have heard it, God must speak to us inwardly by his Holy Spirit, for this is the only means to bring us to the knowledge of the truth. Therefore, when God hath dealt so mercifully with us as to give us the light of faith, let us hold it fast and pray him to continue it and bring his work to perfection. Let us not lift ourselves proudly above other men as though we were more worthy than they are, for we know that it is our God that hath chosen us and setteth us apart from others by his mere goodness and free mercy. We must know, moreover, that men are very faulty when God offereth them his word, and they receive it not. This is spoken that unbelievers and rebels might have their mouths stopped, that they might not blaspheme the name of God as though he had been wanting on his part, and to the end that all the faithful should, in humbleness of heart, glorify God for his grace and mercy toward them. For we see how he calleth all those to whom his word is preached to salvation. If men reply by saying they cannot come to God, we cannot stand to plead here, for we shall always find ourselves in fault. If a man say, it resteth only in the hands of God, and if he would give me repentance, could he not do it? If I remain stiff-necked in my hardness and malice, what can I do in this case, seeing God will not give me repentance to turn to him? This is not in any wise to be be allowed, for God calleth us sufficiently to him, and we cannot accuse him of cruelty. Even if we had not his word, we must needs confess that he is just, although we know not the cause that moved him to deprive us of it. When we are called to come to God and know that he is ready to receive us, if we do not come, can we deny that we are unthankful? Let us not separate salvation from the knowledge of the truth. For God doth not mean to lie nor deceive men when he saith, When they come to the knowledge of the truth, they shall be saved. God will have all men to be saved. But how? If they will come to the knowledge of the truth. Every man would be saved, but no man will draw nigh to God. The scripture informeth us that if we desire salvation, we must attend to the means which God hath appointed. That is, we must receive his word with obedience and faith. The scripture saith, this is everlasting life, to wit, to know God the Father and to receive Christ as our only Savior. Therefore let us learn, as it is here set forth, not to doubt of the certainty of our salvation, for the kingdom of God is within us. If we wish God to receive us, we must receive the doctrine given us by St. Paul. 
How are we called to the hope of salvation? By the influence of the grace of God, which maketh known to us his love and favor. Thus we may see what St. Paul's meaning is when he saith, God will have his grace made known to all the world, and his gospel preached to all creatures. Therefore, we must endeavor as much as possible to persuade those who are strangers to the faith and seem to be utterly deprived of the goodness of God to accept of salvation. Jesus Christ is not only a Savior of few, but he offereth himself to all. As often as the gospel is preached to us, we ought to consider that God calleth us to him. And if we attend to this call, it shall not be in vain, neither shall it be lost labor. But can we come to him without any assistance except what we derive from our own nature? Alas, we cannot. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Romans 8, 7 When God dealeth so graciously with us as to touch our hearts with his Holy Spirit, then he causeth his gospel to work profitably to our salvation. Then he maketh a display of the virtue spoken of by St. Paul. Again, we must remember when the gospel is preached to us that it is to make us more void of excuse, seeing God hath already shown us that he was ready to receive us to mercy. If we would come unto him, our condemnation will no doubt be increased. If we be so wicked as to draw back when he calleth so mildly and lovingly, notwithstanding, as we are here exhorted, let us not leave off praying for for all men in general. For St. Paul showeth that God will have all men to be saved, that is to say, men of all people and nations. Although we see a great diversity among men, yet we must not forget that God hath made us all in his own image and likeness, and that we are the workmanship of his hand. Therefore he extends his goodness to those who are afar off, of which we have had sufficient proof. For when he drew us unto him, were we not his enemies? How then cometh it to pass that we are now of the household of faith, the children of God, and members of our Lord Jesus Christ? Is it not because he hath gathered us to himself, and is he not the Savior of the whole world as well as of us? Did Jesus Christ come to be the mediator of two or three men only? No, no, but he is the mediator between God and men. Therefore we may be so much the more assured that God taketh and holdeth us for his children, if we endeavor to bring those to him who are afar off. Let us comfort ourselves and take courage in this our calling, although there be at this day a great forlornness, though we seem to be miserable creatures, utterly cast away and condemned, yet we must labor as much as possible to draw those to salvation who seem to to be afar off. And above all things, let us pray to God for them, waiting patiently till it please him to show his good will toward them as he hath shown it to us. Chapter 8 
behavior in the church. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. We see what holiness and perfection St. Paul required in all those that had any public charge in the church of God. We see also how he concluded that those who behaved themselves well and faithfully in office purchased to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Jesus Christ. When there is good order in the church and the children of God do their duty faithfully, it is an honor to them and men think them worthy of reverence. This is not to puff them up and make them proud, but that they may be more and more enabled to serve God, and that men may more willingly hear them and receive counsel and advice from them. This is the meaning of St. Paul. Those that do not their duty as they ought have their mouths stopped. They can do nothing with the people but are worthily mocked. Although they are bold, yet they have no gravity. Therefore their doctrine cannot be received. Those that are called to fill offices in the church of God must strive so much the more to do well and endeavor to serve God and the people of God faithfully. But nowadays the wicked seem to bear the sway, before whom the world, as it were, trembles. Thus we see that things are much out of order among us. Where is our liberty at the present day? Not in the faith, but in all wickedness, among those that are hardened and past all shame. We see good men oppressed, who dare not speak in their own defense. If a man reprove a sin and go about to redress matters and set them in order, he is beset on all sides by the wicked. We see not many that trouble themselves to maintain a good cause, for every man betrayeth the truth. We suffer things to go as evil as they can. These are the days spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Righteousness and justice are hunted out from among us, and there is no man that hath zeal enough to set himself against wickedness. It may well seem that we have conspired to foster wickedness and bring it to full maturity. The wrath of God is kindled against us. All things are out of order. Those that walk as becometh Christians and labor to serve God purely are marked out as enemies, and men seek to trample them underfoot. On the other hand, we see the wicked do what they list. They act as wild beasts, yet men stand in fear of them, and this liberty that is given them maketh them the more hardened. When we see such disorder, have we not reason to sigh and be ashamed of ourselves, knowing that God doth not rule at all among us, but that the devil hath full possession? Shall we boast that we have the gospel? 
It is true, his word is preached among us. But do we not see that it is contemned, and that men make a mock of it? But let them flatter themselves in hardening their hearts against God. Yet notwithstanding, this doctrine will continue, and will be preached for a witness against us in the latter day, unless the Lord comes speedily and reform us. St. Paul writeth these things to Timothy, that if he tarry long before he come, he may know how to behave himself in the house of God. Here St. Paul exhorteth Timothy, and in his person all the faithful, to walk warily and carefully in conformity to the spiritual government of the church. For the house of God, if he dwell therein, is the upholder of the truth. Therefore, it is no trifling matter to be called of the Lord, to serve him in the office spoken of by St. Paul. We must beware and fail not, seeing God bestoweth upon us the honor of governing his house. Yea, that house wherein he hath his abode, and will make known his majesty, which is, as it were, a closet where his truth is kept, that it may be maintained and preserved in the world. If the matter stand thus, have not those whom God hath thus honored great occasion to be watchful and to endeavor to execute the charge committed to them? Thus we see St. Paul's meaning. But before we go any farther, it will be necessary to put aside the impudency of the papists who abuse this text in order to establish their own tyranny. For if they can once set up the church of God, they think they have won the field. But they should first prove that theirs is the church of God, which is so difficult a matter for them to do that the contrary is evident. And why so? Because St. Paul saith, the church is the house of God. They have driven our Lord Jesus Christ out of doors, so that he reigneth no more among them as ruler, whereto he was appointed by the Father, who requireth that we should do him homage, submitting ourselves wholly to his doctrine. Do the papists? suffer Jesus Christ to govern them purely and peaceably? Nay, I am sure they do not. They coin and stamp whatever they think proper, and whatsoever they decree is taken for articles of belief. They mingle and confound the doctrine of the gospel with notions devised by themselves, so that we may easily see it is not God's house, otherwise Jesus Christ would not be banished therefrom. Moreover, St. Paul addeth, the church must uphold the truth. But we see in these times that it is oppressed by the tyranny of the Pope, where there remaineth nothing but lies, errors, corruption, and idolatry. Seeing this is the case, we may well conclude that there is not the true church of God. But we will go farther. It was not the meaning of St. Paul, as the papists imagine, that the church cannot err because it is governed by the Holy Ghost and that whatsoever they think good must be received. But on the contrary, St. Paul observes that the church is the upholder of the truth because God will have his truth preached by the mouth of men. 
Therefore he hath appointed the ministration of his word, that we might know his will. For God useth this means, that men may know his truth and reverence it from age to age. This is the reason why the church is called a pillar. The papists endeavor to bury the doctrine of the gospel when they say the church cannot err. Let us consider, say they, that God will inspire us. Yet in the meantime they leave the word of God, thinking they may wander here and there without committing evil. And why? Oh, the church cannot err. But on the other hand, let us see upon what condition our Lord hath honored his church. St. Paul informeth us that he doth not bind us to devise what we think good, but he holdeth us tied and bound to his word. As it is said, I have put my words in thy mouth, and have covered thee in the shadow of mine hand, that I may plant the heavens, and lay the foundations of the earth, and say unto Zion... Thou art my people. Isaiah 51, 16. How is it that God promiseth that he will reign in the midst of his people? He doth not say, because he inspireth them, that they have leave to coin new articles of faith. No, no. But he saith he will put the words of our Lord Jesus Christ into the mouths of such as must preach his name. For that promise was not made for the time of the law only, but is proper for the church of Christ, and shall continue to the end of the world. Thus we see how the church must be the pillar to bear up the truth of God. God will not come down from heaven, neither will he send his angels to bring us revelations from above, but he will be made known to us by his word. Therefore, he will have ministers of the church preach his truth and instruct us therein. If we attend not to these things, we are not the church of God, but are guilty, as much as lieth in us, of abolishing his truth. We are traitors and murderers. And why so? Because God could maintain his truth otherwise if he would. He is not bound to these means, neither hath he any need of the help of men. But he will have his truth made known by such a preaching as he hath commanded. What then would become of us if we should leave off this preaching? Should we not thereby endeavor to bring this truth to naught? It is said the gospel as it is preached is the power of God unto salvation to every one that believeth. Romans 1, 16. And how so? Is it because God hath no other means but by the voice of men in this sound that vanisheth away in the air? No, no. But yet he hath appointed this means to the end that when we are restored by his grace we may attend to the hearing of his word with all reverence. Then shall we feel that his doctrine is not vain and unprofitable but hath its effect and is of such efficacy as to call us to eternal life. 
For St. Paul saith, Faith cometh by hearing. Romans 10:17. And we know it is faith that quickeneth our souls, which otherwise would be helpless and lost. Thus let us mark well St. Paul's meaning, whereby we may know how impudent and beastly the papists are to claim this text in order to establish their tyranny, which is entirely contrary to the meaning of the apostle. But it is not enough to reprove the papists. We also must be edified by the doctrine contained in the text. Therefore, first of all, those that have charged to preach the doctrine of the gospel must take heed to themselves. And why so? Because they are set in God's house to govern it. If a man do any one the honor to put the rule and government of his house and goods in his hands, ought he not to conduct himself in such a manner as to please the one who committed this trust to him? If a prince make a man overseer of his household, is he not bound to do his duty faithfully? So the living God appointeth those that must preach his word in his house and temple. He will have them govern his people in his name and bear the message of salvation, seeing they are called to this high station. What carefulness and humility ought there to be in them. Therefore, let those that are appointed ministers of the word of God know that they have not only to do with men, but that they are accountable to him who hath called them to this high office. Let them not be pulled up with the honor and dignity of their station, but know that they shall be so much the less able to excuse themselves if they walk not uprightly, and that they commit horrible sacrilege, and shall have a fearful vengeance of God prepared for them if they labor not to serve him as they ought. First of all, we are exhorted to do our duty. God, having honored us who were so unworthy, we ought to labor on our part to fill the office whereunto we are called. When the church is called the house of the living God, it ought to awaken us to walk otherwise than we do. Why do we sleep in our sins? Why do we run into wickedness? Do we think that God does not see us? That we are far out of his sight and from the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ? Let us remember that the word of God is preached to us, that God dwelleth among us and is present with us, as our Lord Jesus Christ saith, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Matthew 18:20. And we know, as it is said, that in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Colossians 2, 9. So then, however oft soever the devil attempts to rock us to sleep and tie us to the vanities of this world, or tempt us with wicked lusts, we ought to remember this sentence and set it before our eyes, that God dwelleth in the midst of us, and that we are his house. Now we must consider that God cannot dwell in a foul place. He must have a holy house and temple, and how? Oh, there is no difficulty in setting out ourselves finally that all the world may gaze at us. 
But God taketh no pleasure in all these vanities of the world. Our beautifying must be spiritual. We must be clad with the graces of the Holy Ghost. This is the gold and silver. These are the precious stones spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he describeth the temple of God. Chapter 60, verse 6. Seeing God is so gracious as to have his word preached among us, let us live in obedience to his divine commands, that he may reside with us and we be his temple. For this cause let us see that we cleanse ourselves from all our filthiness and renounce it that we may be a fit place for God's holiness to dwell in. If we attend to these things, we shall reap a great joy, seeing our Lord joineth himself to us and maketh his residence in our souls and bodies. What are we? There is nothing but rottenness in us. I speak not of the body only, but more particularly of the soul, which is still more infected. And yet we see the Lord will build us up, that we may be fit temples for his majesty to reside in. We have great occasion to rejoice by reason of this text, and ought to strive to obtain the pureness which is required by the gospel, because God will have us joined to him and sanctified by his Holy Spirit. Our text says the church of God is the pillar and ground of the truth. God is not under the necessity of borrowing anything from man as we before observed. He can cause his truth to reign without our help. But he doth us this honor and is so gracious as to employ us in this worthy and precious calling. He could instruct us without our hearing the voice of man. He could also send his angels as he did to his servants in ancient times, but he calleth and gathereth us together in his church. There is his banner, which he will set up among his flock. This is the kingly scepter, whereby he will have us ruled. Therefore God hath shut up his truth in the scriptures, and will have it preached and expounded to us daily. For when St. Paul speaketh of the truth, he meaneth the doctrine of salvation, which God hath revealed to us in his word. The apostle saith the doctrine of God, which is the incorruptible seed, whereby we are born anew to everlasting life, is the truth. This is set forth in Colossians. 1, 5, John 16, 13, and John 17, 17. St. John often speaketh of the gospel by calling it the truth, as if he should say, Without it we know nothing, and whatsoever we can comprehend is vain, so that this is the only sure foundation upon which we can rest. And indeed, what would it profit us if we knew all other things and were destitute of the knowledge of our God? If we know not God, I say, alas, are we not more than miserable? But as God hath imprinted his image in his word, it is there he presenteth himself to us and will have us to behold him, as it were, face to face. Second Corinthians 3 and 4. Therefore, it is not in vain that St. Paul giveth this title to the preaching of the word of God, namely, that it is the truth. 
By this means he maketh himself known to us. It is also the means of our salvation. It is our life, our riches, and the seed whereby we become the children of God. In short, it is the nourishment of our souls by which we are quickened. Therefore, let us remember that St. Paul saith, The truth is maintained among us by the preaching of the gospel, and men are appointed thereunto. First of all, we are miserable, as I before observed, if we know not God. And how shall we know Him? Unless we suffer ourselves to be taught by His Word, we must learn to seek for this treasure and apply all our labor to find it. And when God is so gracious as to offer it to us, let us receive it as poor beggars starved with hunger. When it pleaseth him to bestow such a benefit upon us, let us withdraw ourselves from worldly matters, that we may not despise his inestimable blessings. Seeing the truth of God cannot reign among us unless the gospel be preached, we ought to esteem it highly, knowing that he otherwise holdeth himself afar off. If these things were observed as they ought to be, we should see more reverence for the doctrine of the Word of God. In these days we can hardly tell what the word church meaneth. It is true men boast that the gospel is preached and that there is a reformation according to the word of God. But while they use this word church, they know not what it means. Some say they believe there is a universal church, but they speak in language which they do not understand. Such are the papists, who are so ignorant of the word church, being bewitched after the traditions of men, and bound by their tyranny, that they cannot understand it. Neither dare they inquire what the church of God is. They have their foolish devotions, to which they are so much given, that they cannot be brought from them to the right way of salvation. As for us, we have the word of God, but we hardly know how to maintain it. We see what contempt there is cast upon it when it is preached among us, and how it is set at naught, every man being his own teacher. Many are glutted, as it were, with the gospel, and think they know more than is necessary. They know so much that they become sensible of their own condemnation. Thus they shall be twice guilty, because they have once tasted the heavenly gifts, and are now such contemners of the word of God, we plainly perceive that they cast off all honesty, reverence, and religion, and would be content to have God unknown among them. We ought to be greatly ashamed, seeing God hath so enlightened us that we give ourselves to such wickedness, and cause the gospel to be evil spoken of among the ignorant and unbelievers. If we knew how to profit by what is contained in this place, we should have great reason to rejoice, seeing God will have his truth maintained by the means of preaching. 
There is nothing in men but wickedness. And yet, God will use them for witnesses of his truth, having committed it to their keeping. Although there are few that preach the word of God, yet, notwithstanding, this treasure is common to the whole church. Therefore, we are keepers of the truth of God, that is to say, of his precious image, of that which concerneth the majesty of the doctrine of our salvation and the life of the world. When God calleth us to so honorable a charge, have we not great reason to rejoice and praise his holy name? Let us remember to keep this treasure safe, that it be not profaned among us. St. Paul speaketh not only to instruct those that are called to preach the gospel, but that we may all know what blessings God hath bestowed upon us when his word is preached in its purity. Our salvation is a matter of great importance, and we must come to it by means of the gospel. For faith is the life of our souls. As the body is quickened by the soul, so is the soul by faith. So then we are dead until God calleth us to the knowledge of his truth. Therefore we need not fear, for God will adopt us for his children if we receive the doctrine of the gospel. We need not soar above the clouds. We need not travel up and down the earth. We need not go beyond the seas, nor to the bottomless pit to seek God. For we have his word in our hearts and in our mouths. God openeth to us the door of paradise when we hear the promises that are made to us in his name. It is as much as if he reached out his hand visibly and received us for his children. God sealeth this doctrine by the signs which are annexed to it, for it is certain that the sacraments have a tendency to this end, that we may know that the church is the house of God in which he is resident and that his truth is maintained thereby. When we are baptized in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we are brought into God's household. It is the mark of our adoption. Now, he cannot be our father unless we are under his divine protection and governed by his Holy Spirit. As we have an evident witness in baptism and a greater in the Lord's Supper, that is, we have a plain declaration that we are joined to God and made one with him for our Lord Jesus Christ showeth us that we are his body that every one is a member that he is the head whereby we are nourished with his substance and virtue as the body is not separate from the head so Jesus Christ showeth us that his life is common with ours and that we are partakers of all his benefits when we behold this, is it not enough to make the truth of God precious to us? Is it not a looking glass in which we may see that God not only dwelleth among us, but that he also dwelleth in every one of us? God, having made us one with our Lord Jesus Christ, will not suffer us to be separated from him in any way whatsoever. Therefore, when we have this inestimable honor conferred upon us, should we not be ravished, as it were, and learn more and more to withdraw ourselves from the corruptions of this world and truly show that it is not in vain that the Son of God will have us belong to him. 
How are we made one with our Lord Jesus Christ? By being pilgrims in this world, passing through it as true citizens of heaven. St. Paul saith, Ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Ephesians 2.19 When he exhorteth us to withdraw from all wicked affections, he calleth us to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is our life, who is in heaven. Must we not then take pains to come unto him? Now let us meditate upon this subject with solemnity, seeing we are to celebrate the Lord's Supper next Sabbath. Let us see how we are disposed, for God will not have us come to him as liars and deceivers. Therefore, let us see if we are disposed to receive God, not as a guest that traveleth by the way, but as him that hath chosen us for his dwelling place forever. Yea, as him that hath dedicated us to himself as his temples, that we may be as a house built upon a rock. We must receive God by faith and be made truly one with our Lord Jesus Christ, as I have already shown. And are these things practiced among us? Nay, on the contrary, we seem to despise God and, as it were, put Jesus Christ to flight, that he may no more be acquainted with us. Observe the disorder that is among us. Should I enumerate the difficulties? Where should I make an end? Let every one open his eyes. It is impossible for us to think of the confusion that reigns among us nowadays without being amazed if we have any fear of God before us. Men flatter and please themselves in their sins and have become as stocks and stones so that in us is fulfilled that which was spoken by the prophet, namely, that we have a spirit of drunkenness and a spirit of slumber and can discern nothing. As I have already observed, if we had any fear of God before our eyes, we should be cast down in ourselves and not only be ashamed, but detest such confusion as is seen among us, both in public and private. We see men so far out of the way that one would think they were disposed to lift up themselves against God and do contrary to His will. Thus it seemeth that the word of God serveth to harden men in wickedness, for they seem to be at defiance with him, both in public and private, as I have already observed. We daily hear blasphemies, perjuries, and other contempts of God's name. We see that there is disorder among us, that we are so far from honoring God that many act as hypocrites, while others withdraw themselves from all order of the church and are worse than the Turks and heathens. As for my part, I may say that I am ashamed to preach the word of God among you, seeing there is so much confusion and disorder manifested. And could I have my wish, I would desire God to take me out of this world. We may boast that we have a reformation among us, and that the gospel is preached to us. But all this is against us, unless we attend to the duty which God hath enjoined upon us. It is long ago that God warned us, and it is to be feared he will speak no more in mercy, but will raise his mighty arm against us in judgment. Therefore, let us take heed to ourselves, 
For these things are not spoken to stir us up against God, but that we may know our faults and learn to be more and more displeased with ourselves, that we may not become hardened against God. For he calleth us to repentance and showeth that he is ready to receive us to mercy if we return and embrace the promises and fear the threatenings contained in his gospel. Those that are in public office ought to be diligent in their duty, that justice may not be violated. Those that are appointed ministers of the word should have a zeal to purge out all filthiness and pollution from among the people. We should so examine and cleanse ourselves that when we receive the supper of our Lord Jesus Christ, we may be more and more confirmed in his grace that we may be engrafted into his body and be truly made one with him, that all the promises we perceive in the gospel may be better confirmed in us. We must know that he is our life and that we live in him as he dwelleth in us. And thus we know that God owneth and taketh us for his children. Therefore we should be the more earnest to call upon him and trust in his goodness that he may so govern us by his Holy Spirit that poor ignorant creatures may through our example be brought into the right way. For we see many at this day who are in the way to destruction. May we attend to what God hath enjoined upon us that he would be pleased to show his grace not only to one city or a little hand full of people but that he would reign over all the world, that every one may serve and worship him in spirit and in truth. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L 3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. 
For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.